This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Before I get to the main topic for this week, though, I want to address an outrageous comment made by Fox News host Tucker Carlson on Monday. Here's what he told his more than 3 million viewers. Quote, as for forcing children to wear masks outside, that should be illegal. Your response when you see children wearing masks as they play should be no different from your response to seeing someone beat a kid in Walmart. Call the police immediately. Contact Child Protective Services. Keep calling until someone arrives, unquote. Carlson even compared children wearing masks to a hypothetical scenario in which, quote, your kid's school emailed you and announced that every day after lunch, your sixth grader was going to get punched in the face by a teacher, unquote. To counter this outrageous declaration, I brought back this podcast's expert on all things kids and coronavirus. His name is, what is your name? I am Michael David Amsterdam. How old are you? Five years old. Where do you live? Greenfield, Virginia. And do you go to school? Mm, yes. Which school do you go to? JCC. Where are you right now? I'm at Mountain Saba's house. I have a question to ask. What? When you go outside, do you wear anything special? A mask. I wear a mask. Why do you wear a mask? So I don't believe that anyone. That's how you get corona. And do you think everybody should wear a mask? Yeah. Why? Because of coronavirus. Because they keep us safe from coronavirus. Last year, when you were on the show, you said that scientists were working on medicine. Did they make the medicine? Yes. What is the medicine called? Vaccine. Did Mommy and Daddy get a vaccine? Yes. Did Nana and Saba get a vaccine? Yes. Should everybody get a vaccine? Yes. Why shouldn't everybody get a vaccine? Because of the coronavirus. Would it make them sick if they get the vaccine? No, it would make them feel better. You think everybody should get a vaccine? Yes. And everybody should wear a mask when they're together with other people? Yes. Are you going to go to school in September? Yes. What school are you going to next year? Kindergarten. And you're going to be six? Yes. Are you looking forward to go to school? Yeah. There you have it. Thank you, Grant Michael David Amsterdam. So much for Tucker Carlson. Grant will return later in the podcast. And now to our main topic. Fifty years ago this coming Monday, on May 3rd, 1971, NPR's All Things Considered debuted. And it began with live reporting from the streets of Washington, D.C., where 20,000 youths were stopping traffic to protest the Vietnam War. Over the air, one NPR reporter suddenly spoke these words. Quote, one demonstrator knocked down by a motor scooter police officer, unquote. A moment later, he said this, quote, we have one injured down here. Can you send an ambulance down here, please, unquote. Police trying to run over demonstrators was a shocking thing 50 years ago, but it did happen more times than we'd like to hear about. 
but it was not something people heard live from coast to coast in those days until that All Things Considered debut. Last year, though, after the murder of George Floyd, we even got to see some of that in the demonstrations that followed. In New York last May, for example, videos filmed by witnesses show multiple incidents of NYPD officers using their vehicles, quote, to intimidate, endanger, and willfully attempt to injure protesters, unquote, according to one news report. Also in May, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, multiple protesters were injured by police vehicles, according to news reports there. And in June, in Detroit, an officer drove his police SUV through a crowd, quote, sending protesters flying, unquote, according to another news report. In the past, of course, police officers who did such things could face disciplinary action. Now, however, some states are trying to make it okay for police to do just that. A new Iowa law, for example, eliminates liability for drivers who hit protesters while expanding qualified immunity and increasing benefits for police officers who do so. Some of these laws even give ordinary motorists the green light to do so. Republican legislators in Oklahoma and Iowa have passed bills granting immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters in public streets. Iowa's bill awaits the governor's signature, which is expected. Under Oklahoma's new law, a driver will no longer be liable for striking or even killing a person if the driver is, quote, fleeing from a riot under a reasonable belief that fleeing was necessary to protect the motor vehicle operator from serious injury or death, unquote. And, of course, that's a very subjective standard. Earlier this month, too, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis signed into a law a bill that does the same thing. It seems no one, at least among Republicans, remember, or perhaps they simply don't care, that 32-year-old Heather Heyer was killed in 2017 when a white supremacist drove his car into a crowd of protesters at a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. These laws are part of a broader effort among some Republican governors and legislators to put an end to the kinds of protests that followed in the wake of George Floyd's murder last year. Many tried to pass similar laws in 2017 before Heather Heyer's death. Now they're bringing those laws back up again, and this time they're succeeding in getting them passed. The new Oklahoma law creates new penalties for protesters who obstruct streets or vehicle traffic, including hefty fines of up to $5,000 and as much as a year in jail. In Indiana, a Republican proposal would bar anyone convicted of unlawful assembly from holding state employment, including holding elected office. A Minnesota bill would prohibit those convicted of unlawful protesting from receiving student loans, unemployment benefits, or housing assistance. Minnesota, of course, is where George Floyd was murdered and where protests continued, even up to the conviction of his killer, Derek Chauvin. Florida's new law defines a riot as a public disturbance involving three or more people, quote, acting with the common intent to assist each other in violent and disorderly conduct, unquote, that results in injury to another person, damage to property, or merely danger of injury or damage. 
the law grants civil immunity to people who drive into protesters who are blocking a road, prevents people accused of rioting from bailing out of jail until after their first court appearance, and increases penalties for assaulting law enforcement officers while engaging in its definition of a riot. In a statement, Governor DeSantis said the legislation, quote, strikes the appropriate balance of safeguarding every Floridian's constitutional right to peacefully assemble, while ensuring that those who hide behind peaceful protests to cause violence in our communities will be punished, unquote. For the record, the Washington Post has been collecting data on political crowds in the United States since 2017, including last summer's protests. The total of 7,305 events involving millions of attendees were studied in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. As the Post reported earlier this month, quote, Our data suggests that 96.3% of events involved no property damage or police injuries, and in 97.7% of events, no injuries were reported among participants, bystanders, or police, unquote. In other words, protests are not the problem Republicans are making them out to be. What these and other laws and proposed laws are aiming at is to make people powerless to speak truth to power, while giving license to white supremacists to cause injury or even death to protesters they disagree with, as with Heather Heyer in 2017. And so the topic for this week is speaking truth to power and what Judaism has to say about that. From almost the moment of its birth, from almost the moment when God chose Abraham to found the family that would grow into the people of Israel, one of the hallmarks of Israel has been its mandate to speak truth to power. And that includes challenging God if we think God acts unjustly or is about to do so. Abraham is our founding father. Moses is our lawgiver and greatest prophet. No one before him or after him had so up close and personal a relationship with God. Their experiences, therefore, are meant to inform us and guide us. So we need to examine critical incidents in the lives of both men. We begin with Abraham. He was uniquely different from all those who preceded him in the bogus view of the history of the world. Not even Noah had the guts to stand up to God when God told him he was about to destroy the world down to the most innocent infants who were guilty of nothing because of the monstrous depravity of both human beings and animals. Abraham was a far different kind of person. He was someone who'd challenge God, who'd speak truth to power. We see this several times, and in each case, Abraham grows bolder in speaking truth to power, the ultimate power, God. At one point, for example, he challenges God's promise that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the earth. Then there was the day God told Abraham something that shook our founding father to his core. God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities round about them. Quote, Abraham came forward and said, Will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? It's profane for you to do such a thing to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty, so that innocent and guilty fare alike. It's profane for you to do such a thing. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Unquote. 
It's one thing, perhaps, to challenge God about promises that don't look as though they'll ever be kept. But it's something else entirely to challenge God regarding something he proposes to do. That's the ultimate chutzpah. So where did Abraham get the idea he could do something like that? The answer actually comes from God's own explanation for why he chose Abraham in the first place. Quote, that Abraham may instruct his children and his posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right, unquote. We are Abraham's posterity. Abraham was chosen to start a family that would grow into a nation that would be tasked, as I've said so often, to teach the world by the example of our lives to do, quote, what is just and right, unquote. That task includes speaking truth to power. In fact, it requires it. And this includes standing up even to God if we think God has done wrong. That's what God expected of Abraham when he told him about Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Abraham did. And that's what we all must do. That's our role. And by us, I don't mean the Jews only, but all people of goodwill. Not only must we, the Jewish people, speak truth to power, we have to inspire others to do so as well. Abraham showed the way. It was Moses, however, for whom the mission of speaking truth to power became his life's work. That Moses spoke truth to power is not really headline-making. Of course he did. That's what the whole Exodus story is about. Time and again, he challenged Pharaoh, the most mighty, absolute monarch of his day. Moses, however, didn't limit his truth to power talks to the king of Egypt. The real most mighty, absolute monarch of that day or any day is God. And Moses never hesitated to challenge God when he thought God was wrong. He didn't waste any time getting up the courage either. Moses' challenges to God began at the very beginning of their relationship, at the burning bush itself. God tells Moses that he must go to Egypt, confront Pharaoh, and bring out the Israelites from slavery to freedom. Quote, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? Unquote. God counters that objection and every other objection that Moses raises. Quote, but Moses said to the Lord, Please, O Lord, I have never been a man of words, either in times past or now that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Please, O Lord, make someone else your agent, unquote. Let's analyze what's going on here. From somewhere inside the bush, or more likely from somewhere inside his head, Moses hears a voice that identifies itself as God. The voice tells him to go to Egypt and free the Israelites. Moses quickly evaluates the situation. He's standing before a bush on fire, but is not burning. It remains intact. When he hears the voice, he knows it speaks truth. Moses doesn't even bother to question that the voice belongs to God, because in his mind, there could be no other explanation for what his eyes are seeing. Yet, despite the fact that he believes that God is speaking to him, the first words Moses says to God is to tell God he chose the wrong person. No matter what God says, Moses continues to object and insist that God's got it wrong. Finally, God lets Moses know the decision is made and there's nothing more to discuss. This initial conversation between Moses and God is mild compared to some of the others the two had over the next 40 years, as we soon see. Moses did as God asks. He really had no other choice. 
he goes to Pharaoh and makes his demand in God's name. The Pharaoh responds by issuing orders that make the lives of the Israelite slaves even more difficult and even more miserable. Quote, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why did you bring harm upon this people? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has dealt worse with his people, and still you have not delivered your people. Unquote. By standing up to God, Moses confirmed to himself what God already knew, that he really was the right person for the job. Of course, that only emboldened Moses. Time and again over the next 40 years, he stood up to God, especially when God's anger against Israel was so great that it threatened Israel's very existence. The golden calf incident is a prime example of this. God tells Moses he wants to destroy Israel and start all over with Moses and his family. Quote, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, saying, Let not your anger, O Lord, blaze forth against your people whom you delivered from the land of Egypt. Let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he delivered them, only to kill them off on the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. Turn from your blazing anger and renounce the plan to punish your people, unquote. God then renounced his desire to destroy the Israelites. After Moses sees the golden calf for himself, he goes ballistic. In fact, he's so angry that he smashes the two tablets of stone God himself inscribed. He then orders the Levites to go through the camp and kill everyone who took part in the golden calf heresy. And the Levites end up killing 3,000 people on Moses' orders. Moses may have acted rashly in ordering so many deaths, something God didn't ask him to do. But his anger doesn't stop him from keeping God from acting rashly. God tells Moses he won't destroy Israel because Moses asked him not to do so. But God says, quote, I will not go in your midst, since you are a stiff-necked people, lest I destroy you on the way, unquote. Moses then challenges God, quote, Unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. And the Lord said to Moses, quote, I will also do this thing that you have asked, unquote. Throughout, God says to Moses, these are your people, your people, not my people. You brought them out of Egypt, not me. No way, says Moses. These are your people, God, not mine. And you brought them out of Egypt, not me, as you keep reminding me and everyone else. And as for your promise to make of me a great nation after you destroy Israel, says Moses, you can't do that either. Your reputation is at stake. After all you did to establish that you and you alone are God, the last thing you want to hear anyone say is that you couldn't deliver on your promise and so you destroyed Israel. That's a lot of chutzpah. That's also a lot of talking truth to power. These verbal bouts between Moses and God are a standard feature of their 40 years together. Truth to power starts with Abraham and is turned into an art form by Moses. It continues through the Tanakh, the Bible, with the prophets, and then it continues throughout Jewish history, even challenges to God, the supreme power, continue throughout Jewish history. These stories are in the Tanakh for a reason. They're there to teach us that it's our job to speak truth to power, even if that power is God himself. If we can challenge the one who created all that exists or ever will exist, if we can challenge God, 
how much more so must we be willing to challenge someone who's but a mere image of God, no matter who that person is, no matter what power that person wields, no matter what the potential consequences to us may be. What the Republican governors and legislators in some of the so-called red states want to do is put an end to our challenging what we consider unjust or immoral. Many of these governors and legislators claim to be doing God's work or say they are motivated by God's word. Clearly, they have no understanding of either. Grant, thank you again for being our guest this week. Do you want to say anything to our listeners? Yeah. Shabbat Shalom! This is Rabbi Shalai Engelman. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom, stay healthy, and stay safe.